This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Green Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Greenleft is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning. You're listening to Green Left Radio, brought to you by 3CR, 855 AM on your dial. And I'm Chloe, one of your presenters. All right. Before we... And you're also joined today by Jacob Andwafer. Um And before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that 3CR today is being broadcast to you from the lands of the Wandry Wawon people of the Kulin Nation, and we respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners as the caretakers and custodians of this land. This land was stolen, taken by brute force, and that sovereign and sovereignty was never ceded. We join in solidarity with First Nations people struggle for justice. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now we have quite a good we have quite a good program um, today with uh, a good range of, of guests uh, for our program. <laughs> so to start off, we're actually going to be speaking to Peter Boyle, who is actually a member of the Socialist Alliance National Executive and also an activist journalist for Green Left, based in Gutterland. Now we're going to be speaking to him, talking about you know what are some of the solutions that we could be putting forward to ease the sustained cost of living crisis. And in fact, there was actually one announcement that just happened today. I think it was actually yesterday. It's just being reported yesterday that um, Australia has actually, um, um, in terms of statistics around living standards, has dropped by five percent in terms of our uh, in terms of our living standards, which is in the context of this cost <coughs> of living. And of course, probably people might be aware the Reserve Bank of Australia has just um, raised interest rates um, even further, which is going to disproportionately impact on working people, especially with um, with mortgages, etc. And actually, you know, the thing the thing that also has to be pointed out about these interest rates rises is they actually have a disproportionate impact on anyone, regardless of whether you uh, have a mortgage or not. Like, say, for example, we're both renters. Mm. Uh, uh, interest rates increases basically will be putting more pressure on landlords and so on to basically increase rents to pay for their mortgage repayments. So, especially if they're buying, if they especially if they end up, especially if investors basically buy a new investment property. Yeah, that's a good interview to tune into at seven ten, and then at seven forty we've got Tasmin Rock, who is a pro democracy and campaign manager for the Myanmar Campaign Network to talk about the situation in Myanmar where people are, there are still protests, um, they're still going through um, what is locally known as the Spring Revolution. So look forward to hearing from Tasmin. And then at 8.10 we've got Dave Ball who's the Deputy Branch Secretary of the MUA uh, Victoria to talk to us about um, various industrial disputes that are happening 
um, as well as the um, the big protest at Port Melbourne to block the Israeli ship. So look forward to hearing from Dave Ball. But let's first go into some news headlines. And we've got some good news stories today, don't we, Jacob? Yeah, so I want to kind of go... F- I think there's a lot of important things to highlight for this um, week's program. And every probably one of the main focuses of um, our program and probably a lot of the left-wing programs right now has obviously been responding to the terrible situation that's happening in Palestine. Mm. But I think what has been quite expiring has been the people's kind of response. The fact that you know, every Sunday the protests are actually getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, I just want to let, um, um, remind our listeners that, yeah, the next big protest for Palestine will be this Sunday at 12pm at the State Library. And that's going to be ongoing until a ceasefire. Yeah. Um, and last Sunday was apparently the biggest the biggest protest in Melbourne since the invasion of Iraq. It was the biggest anti-war protest in Melbourne since the invasion of Iraq, I think. So, um, yeah, and it's going to be – and it's just going to keep growing. And um, so some of the victories that have actually happened in response to pressure from activists is – the first win I want to highlight is RMIT has cancelled its deal with Israel's largest weapons manufacturer, Elbit Systems. And this has been the product of a sustained BDS campaign by students and staff activists, including weekly rallies. Um, in fact, we actually recently had a bit of an interview where we – um, on Green Left Radio, where we kind of spoke about um, uh, some of the direct action that's been that has targeted Elbit Systems, and then and they've been they've been protesting for a long time, not just since October seventh. Yeah, yeah. And um, the second win has been that the Marybeck Council has become the first council in Victoria to pass a motion to um, fly the Palestinian flag. But they also voted further than that. They also voted in. Um, um, they also voted in uh, in favour of condemning Israel's war crimes, uh, immediate ceasefire, but also an end to the occupation and more. Mm, and that's that is so. Marybeck City Council passed one of the strongest Palestine solidarity motions of any council, and that is wonderful for the people, for the Palestinians, that their voices were. Jacob and I were both there at the meeting. It was very. Um, emotional, and it's not just the flag raising. Although, um, as you, as Jacobs pointed out, it's it's more than that 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 was passed. Um, but uh, one resident, Jordana Silverstein, who's a Jewish resident from Brunswick, mentioned seeing the Palestinian flag fly makes all of us safer. And I agree with her. I would definitely feel safer um, if it means the people of that area, the local government, doesn't support mass murder and denounces Israel's genocide and war crimes. That's the least you can ask from your local government. It shouldn't be that complicated. So, um, yeah, congratulations. And it's, um, yeah, it's great to, it would be great to see that flag flying soon. Yeah. And um, the, la- the the third one, which is something we're going to be highlighting, is um, activists um, successfully blocked the Israeli ship Zim from gl- landing in Port Melbourne in alignment from call with, call for, for, with calls from Palestinian trade unions to support BDS actions. They also blocked, um, blockaded the road for 12 hours, stopping trucks from entering the docks. So that's actually... Um, that's actually another important retreat, but we're going to be highlighting a bit. Um, we're going to be highlighting some discussion about that when we interview Dave Bohr at eight ten a.m. Um, so stay tuned, um, listeners, for that. And then, obviously, the week um, we mentioned this before, but the weekend um, weekly free Palestine rallies continue to grow by the thousands. 
And, you know, these are, I think, you know, there's also other actions that have been started to be organised as well. I mean, one thing to mention about the Marybeck Council uh, meeting, um, there had been, a, there was a protest that was organised, a community protest that was organised outside the council meeting before it started, and mm. it managed to draw up to 400 kind of people. So Yeah, I want to say also thank you to the to everybody who turned out in such large numbers, and also to Sue Bolton, Monica Hart, um, James Conlon for uh, drafting that mo- motion and for all their work in, um, you know, coordinating that that rally and also the Greens councillors for their strong support to to support that motion. So yeah, it was a it was a good day. But d- don't forget to follow Free Palestine Melbourne for all the info on upcoming actions and events. I mean, there are other pages as well you can follow um, that are um, putting all the events like greenleft dot um, org. Um, sorry, greenleft.org.au slash events. Um, you can follow um, APAN as well um, and also Friends of the Earth. So there's lots of different activist um, organisations that are, are putting up um, all the different events you can support for Palestine. Okay. Um, so I might just go play a quick few announcements and then we will possibly go into our first interview for the program. You're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. And we're very happy to be joined today by Peter Boyle, um, who is a member of the Socialist Alliance National Executive. He is also an activist journalist for Green Left and also is based in Gatherland, um, so-called Sydney. Um, and one of the reasons we have Peter on the program is he actually wrote an article um, and which is kind of reflective of the positions that Socialist Alliance is putting forward for um, for the, um, the cost of living crisis. And the article was titled 10 Solutions to Ease the Cost of Living Crisis. And our listeners can actually read the article um, online at, on greenleft.org.au. Um, but, yeah, thank you for, for joining us um, this morning, Peter. Good morning. Um, what can you tell, um, I guess, to give um, to kind of start off a bit, about a bit with some of the political kind of context. Um, and can you give us a, get a bit of a kind of update on the cost of living crisis? Is it actually getting worse for ordinary people? And I guess, I mean, I think one of the real questions to kind of ask, have, has things actually gotten, because we we're in the midst of a cost of living crisis prior to the last federal election, has 
has it actually eased up since the ALP have come into power? Have they actually sort of played a role? I mean, there was actually, I just mentioned before briefly that um, there was actually a report that came out that has um, reported that our living standards have actually dropped by 5%. Um, so, yeah, I'd like to hear some of your comments. Yes, well, I, I wrote this article uh, just before the decision, the latest decision of the Reserve Bank to raise the interest rates again, which they did a few days ago. Uh, but um, already then there was a lot of evidence showing that uh, the cost of living crisis for ordinary households was getting a lot worse. And there was, for instance, uh, research that showed that two out of five families in in Australia, which is a really wealthy country, are cutting back on their spending on basic groceries just to meet their bills. And 17.7% are skipping meals. Now, since then, I think you were referring to a report of uh, and a new report that just came out uh, of an OECD struggle, uh, study that showed that Australian households had the sharpest drop in, uh, in, in income adjusted for inflation of any developed country. So that's the, that was the figure that you were mentioning that's just come up. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot and lot of evidence that uh, the cost of living crisis has not eased up. Uh, you know, we know that there were other studies which I cited in the article that showed that, uh, you know, nearly 40% of uh, households with mortgages are struggling to pay their home loans. And one in seven, which is the equivalent of 500,000 families, are seriously worried they're going to have to sell off their homes because they just can't meet their mortgages. And, of course, that means potentially half a million people who are then going to be added to the list of people who are now struggling to afford to rent housing. And, and that problem is, is, is so clear. It's obvious that it's, 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 it's sweeping through our society. Um, there are people who are having to, you know, after living for maybe decades independently, uh, have to go back and, and live with their parents uh, because they can't afford to pay rent. So much evidence of this, and every time you look at the, the advertisements for house or, 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 um, or unit rents, uh, you see the landlords are bumping them up to ridiculous prices. Uh, and, and, you know, all this in the context of our real incomes going down. Now, strangely, the new Reserve Bank Governor, Michelle Bullock, in her first official speech, you know, had this really weird reference to say, oh, we don't, I'm not really worried about the renters because uh, my statistics uh, show that they've got uh, spare cash. Spare cash. Uh, actually, I had a close look at what these statistics were. What those statistics she was referring to actually showed that the cost of living crisis was hurting lower-income households twice as hard as higher income households. That was what the real thing was showing. Now, it did show that more people had actually uh, been pushed into lower income. And, and this was the sort of... And she used this as an excuse to say, oh, well, look, you know, um, the total share of, of, of low income in, in the whole national income had grown. 
well, that's just telling you that more people have been shoved into the low-income uh, group, and she used that as a way to dismiss. Now, you know, at, at a personal level, yeah, you could think these reserve bank governors, you know, what the hell do they know about ordinary people? The previous reserve bank governor, Philip Lowe, who was, you know, uh, was dismissed, you know, in a cynical attempt by the Labor government to provide a uh, scapegoat for the you know, huge unpopularity that it was suffering because of this rising uh, cost of living crisis. Um, he was on a million dollars a year. So, I mean, you know, a person on a million dollars a year, what would they know about how it feels like uh, to, 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 to suffer the cost of living crisis from ordinary people? So they're on another plan altogether. But the most important thing, of course, is not the individual thing. It's the, it's the nature of the job of the so-called independent reserve bank or central bank plays in a modern uh, capitalist economy. It is declared independent because that means independent of the popular control or popular interest. It's independent so that it can carry out a policy to make the working class pay for any problems in the economy uh, through the limited control it has uh, through interest rates. That used to be one of the levers, economic levers, that Keynesian governments in the past used. But, and they could use it to help ordinary people. But in this case, you have an independence. The independence of the Reserve Bank is code for saying the Reserve Bank will always serve the interests of only the, the richest, the ruling class in, in this country. It is able to ignore what the pressures that politicians feel. So in his, his, last, um, his last testimony to a parliamentary hearing, the former Reserve Bank uh, Governor Philip Lowe made this completely blunt and cynical statement. He said, "Look, I'm the most, I'm probably the most unpopular person in this country, but that doesn't matter. That's the job I have. You know, I get paid this money so that the government can say, oh, no, it's not our fault. The Reserve Bank, the Independent Reserve Bank, did it.' So, you know, I'm, I think the basis of this article is that I think we want people to question why that should be the case. Why should the capitalist class has this well-paid institution that always makes the working class pay for the price, pay the cost of uh, inflation, for instance, fighting inflation. This is what they say they're doing, right? Because that's what they're doing. The Reserve Bank is working to do... It's got two targets, basically. Its general target wants to bring inflation down. It's currently 5.6%. They want to bring it to the range of 2 to 3%. But its real practical target is it wants to increase unemployment mm. to, to 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 at least you know to, to at least four point five percent because they've got the theory that's the degree that that's called the non-inflating rate of unemployment. Now Marxists have another term for this. It's called the reserve army of labour. They've got to have this huge numbers of people who are unemployed to put pressure on the rest of the working class to cop the pain of inflation. So, for instance, currently our inflation is largely caused by increases in housing and in fuel, as well as a few services. Everybody knows, and the statisticians have done the work to show, that the big oil companies 
has been making super profits by using the excuse of war or COVID supply chain shortages to bump up fuel costs, right? Mm-hmm. That's a big part of it. So, so they do something, they make super profits, and uh, the rest of us are supposed to pay the price of fixing the problem. And that's basically what the Reserve Bank has been doing over the last period of time. And making the ordinary people who had nothing to do with the causes of inflation, who are actually bearing the biggest brunt of the cost of living crisis, which is how the inflation expresses itself for ordinary people, making them pay, pay for it, suffer more. And, and it's so cynical. They're going to throw people on the unemployment heap. So the rest of those who have a job are going to say, okay, I'll, I'll be prepared to take a reduction in our real income. So this is the context in which the article was written. And you say, well, if you had a government that really wanted to, was prepared to serve the interests of the ordinary people, you'd have a totally different approach to the cost of living crisis. And I put forward 10 basic solutions, which are not, of course, exhaustive, but they're kind of like, show you know, which way socialists would move mm. if they were in control of government. Yeah. Uh, hi, Peter. It's, it's Chloe here. And, and sorry to you and hi. listeners if you if you heard Jacob and I talking while Peter was talking before. We weren't able to hear Peter through our headphones. And while trying to fix it, we forgot to turn the mic off. So that's what you heard. But back to the interview, Peter, it, it is easy for the government to fix or address the cost of living crisis and serve the interests of the majority of people instead of the capitalist ruling elite. Um, but they, they always try to make it sound very complicated. And in the article, you presented a free 24-hour childcare as a solution, um, as, as well as some of the other social solutions to the cost of living crisis that you put forward. Would you be able to explain to listeners, um, you know, uh, why some of these things would ease the cost of living crisis, particularly that 24-hour childcare? Yeah, well, I think, you know, from, if, if you approached it from the point of view of, of, of working class interests, Let's look at how the cost of living crisis are impacting upon, uh, you know, our, our households. And, you know, for many people, uh, the, the, the cost of childcare is, is, a big, is, is a big issue. And if you could have free 24-hour quality childcare, that would have a huge impact on working class households and an even bigger impact on women who are still carrying the brunt of childcare and well, domestic work and in, 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 in within the households, um, and it's not just that you know it, it, it also is actually a condition of being able to work. You know, um, if you can't find childcare in a working class, in an average working class household, one parent is going to have to stay home unless you can get a grandparent to come and move in and be the unpaid childcare worker. So. This is the approach I think that a socialist government would take. It would address the problem of cost of living crisis directly. So the the other sort of similar things that we do would be to introduce a full automatic uh, quarterly indexation of wage wages and welfare uh, payments so that, you know, they, they don't get eroded as they have been doing over the last few years by inflation. I mean, the real incomes have been going down. 
for ordinary people, for working class people, uh, because inflation has been cutting into it. There should be automatic quarterly indexation. Now, I'm old enough to remember a time um, when this was uh, uh, the standard demand by the trade union movement in the face of a cost of living crisis. It was the case right up until the 1980s when we then had a Labor government that introduced all these neoliberal changes and also introduced this idea that, oh, you know, this question is to be given to the Independent Reserve Bank. It's part of the neoliberal changes that uh, they brought in. Uh, so I remember that, that, that demand today for automatic uh, full indexation of wage rates, for instance, um, I haven't heard a single significant trade union even raise it as a demand. And, you know, bear in mind, we've got a Labor government that the trade union movement is, is supposed to have a lot of influence over. What the hell is happening there? Now, the next thing which I think is so obvious is to tackle the cost of living crisis where it probably hurts most working class people the most at the level of housing. Now, we don't want Mickey Mouse solutions that just help the landlord class uh, continue to, to hit uh, renters with higher and higher uh, rents. Uh, so we have to kind of, if you really want to address the housing shortage, and you know, there obviously is a housing shortage of sorts, let's tackle it in a way that's going to help ordinary people, not help the rich and the landlord class and the speculative developer class. Let's build public housing. Basically, by doing this, if you spend money on public housing, you're actually pulling it out out of the market, if you like, pulling it out of the, the hands of the greedy landlords and developers. And in that way, you're actually tackling uh, the problem of rent in a double way. One, you're actually providing affordable housing that people can, can use, but you're also putting, if you like, downward market pressure on the private rental market. So housing is another key thing that has to be has to be done, um, and you know it can be done really more efficiently and cheaply than it's being done currently by the market. You can you can produce good quality housing uh, without having to make armies of uh, speculators and 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 capitalists rich in the process. Another significant act that which uh, I think a socialist government would do would it, it would make the healthcare really free because I mean, everybody knows now, you know, supposedly Australia's got the best uh, universal healthcare system, but it's being eroded all around. And you can hardly find uh, a medical service or a doctor who's going to bulk bill you. It's so hard. It's literally impossible in many suburbs and towns in this country to find a bulk billing doctor. Then you take into account dental costs, you know, I mean, going to the dentist, you know, if people would rather have rotten teeth than go to the dentist and have an empty pocket or a, or, or, or a debt. That would be another step. Um, public education, people being weighed down with hex debt, ridiculous. I mean, everybody who's got a hex debt got a big slug this financial year, right? The government changed the rules. 
increase the, the, the amount of interest that, that you have to pay on your hex debt. Uh, they should be completely cancelled, wiped out. That's part of the house link. You know, it, it, as we're talking about these things, we're, we're thinking, what the hell is this? None of these questions are being raised in this in the Reserve Bank discussion. Nah, none whatsoever. None of these kind of solutions. That solution is one solution. Uh, make the workers pay, increase unemployment. That's that's that slogan. Uh, you know, at, now the question of how we're going to pay for it, I think, is quite interesting because people that's that's the classic thing. Socialists put forward measures, and you know, uh, the right wing says, "Oh well, but how are you going to pay for it?" You know, well, you could pay for it for once by reversing the kind of ridiculous tax cuts for the rich that the current Labor government is continuing. Uh, from the previous coalition government, the stage three tax cut. I mean, that, that, that alliance is going to be billions and billions of dollars that you have. Then, if you look at, say, the, the, the amount of money they're blowing on AUKUS uh, nuclear powered submarines, and not just that, you know, huge amounts of missiles, ridiculous fighter jet programs that, you know, are just like constantly inflated. There's billions and billions of dollars there that could be. Reallocated to addressing the cost of living crisis. So, you know, I, I, I don't buy the argument that the money isn't there. It's just that where you're prepared to spend that money. Hmm. I kind of want to ask a kind of question. I mean, this um, one thing that's sort of being raised is this kind of question around corporate kind of profits. Because um, there was an article that was written by um, Bonio Kampak, who wrote, like, um, in a Green Left article, that during the cost of current cost of living crisis, companies are beaming um, at their profit margins. Um, and, of course, we've seen the examples of, you know, Qantas and the Commonwealth Bank and supermarket outlets such as Coles have also announced huge return. Now, you know, we're all being told that... Um, you know, we're in a cost of living crisis. We've got to keep inflation out of con- under control because, yeah, you've got to keep inflation under control because it'll, it'll sort of harm everyone. Um, I want to kind of ask about, you know, how are co- how are corporations actually profiting from this? What is actually this cost of li- a cost of living crisis and an issue of inflation? Well, I think that you know the, the studies that have been done. Say, Australia Institute has uh, done very good uh, study into the amount of super profiting. War profiting, if you could, if you like, by the uh, the oil companies. The next study that came along looked into super profiting by uh, the uh, the major uh, retail companies in the people who own the supermarkets, and they've been doing the same thing as well. Now, of course, the people who the, the figures that we've seen recently, the banks, well, they're doing pretty well out of this. I think Westpac was the last one to report massive increase in. In, in profits, um, and obviously they are also, you know, among other things, they, they find the banks have got numerous ways to take money out of people's pockets. Uh, but one of the basic classic bankers' way is that they increase the margin between the the interest rates at which they borrow money, and this is how the Reserve Bank operates. Right, the, the, the way the Reserve Bank influences interest rates is they they increase or lower. The rate at which uh, the rate of interest that which is charged uh, for exchanges between banks overnight. This is part of the banking system. Um, so the banks have a choice: how much do they pass on 
increased costs or a decrease in the cost. Well, they're very clever. They always pass on you know, the slightest increase in the cost of their borrowing onto mortgage holders, etc., very quickly. But if they have a decrease in interest rate or a decrease in, in their they 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 and they, they don't lower the cost at which they lend their money out. So their margins have been increasing, as well as doing other things like closing banks down, using automatic uh, remote banking, uh, internet banking, etc. Finding many ways to, to to make money. So all this is being protected. All the super profits are being protected by the system, which says oh, the Reserve Bank independently read on behalf of the ruling class, interest only controls the situation. It's the one that's fighting inflation. No, it's not fighting inflation. It's actually allowing these big corporations to do the super profiting, which is actually feeding inflation, while saying, no, we're making sure that it's ordinary households that are going to pay the cost of this, cop the pain, because that's going to fix the problem. Well, it's obviously not fixing it, is it? You know, these 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 big corporations are still super profiting, despite the fact that they have been exposed for what they're doing. But this is what is going on now. I mean, in the housing market, I think a big element is um, basically speculative money that has gone into housing. This is money that comes in here and sees housing not as homes for people to live in but simply as a way of making money. And therefore, it doesn't matter. They don't care whether their houses are kept empty for large periods of time, if they can be guaranteed, that if, they can, if they can have the whole kind of price of housing constantly going up as it is once again now, because they can make capital gains when they sell it in the future. Now, they don't mind if they throw out all the people who are dependent on rental housing, ordinary working class people in say, some regional and small towns, uh, just to use the housing for to Airbnb for for the odd tourist that comes in, even though it means that 50% of the time or sometimes 80% of the time those, those dwellings are empty. They don't care. They just want to have a return on the money, whether it's through actual income earned or through uh, capital, capital gains when they sell it on in an inflating housing market. So this is what's happening. And, and all this is being protected. These rackets are being protected by the so-called independent reserve bank. Uh, thanks, Peter. We are actually about to wrap up. So thanks for coming on the show this morning and giving us a great interview and for writing that article in Green Left, 10 Solutions to Ease the Cost of Living Crisis. I encourage listeners to give that a read. The government can easily end this cost of living crisis clearly and we we do need to keep pressuring them to break with the you know from the corporate profits first agenda of the first of the major parties but before we let you go peter is there anything else you want to add yeah i agree with you uh chloe i think we have to keep the pressure on this is supposedly a labor government you know we got to say well come on you you claim to be a uh, you know, a, a, a party that represents the interests of the working class. Come on, act on it. More important than that, I think everybody who's a member of a trade union needs to put pressure on their trade union to, to be independent, to speak up on this. 
make some of these demands, even if they they simply raise the demand for automatic indexation to compensate working class incomes uh, for, for for the cost of living price. Even if they went back, fill in, take a get in a time machine, go back to the late 1970s, and you'll find those demands there. Get a spine. Thanks, Peter. Um, yeah, and you're, we'll we'll look forward to hearing from you uh, in a future future radio show. Thanks. Thank, thank you, Chloe and Jacob. So, if you're just tuning in to Green Left Radio on 3CR, you are listening to Peter Boyle, who is a member of Socialist Alliance um, and an activist journalist for Green Left, based in Gadi Land, so-called Sydney. We're just going to go to a quick break, and we'll come back. Um, with more Green Left Radio. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. You're back listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And just a quick news story before we go to a song with Palestine on all of our minds. Um, we just wanted to give you, give listeners a bit of an update if you haven't had time to hear the news this morning that Israel has agreed to a four-hour daily pause in Gaza, the, um, fighting to allow civilians to flee. Um, that's coming from the White House. Um and well, you know, and then and they've also bombed. They've also attacked. Um, Israel has attacked a children's hospital uh, twice on Thursday, um, forcing the hospital to almost stop, uh, fully stop operating. And well, I guess what we have to say to that is there is a genocide going on in Gaza, and you know, going on about some humanitarian humanitarian pause is is. Um, it's just meaningless uh, when we should be, you know, we actually should be focused on stopping the ongoing genocide, lifting the siege, stopping the ongoing killing, the ongoing occupation, expulsion, the ethnic cleansing, the mass slaughter of children. Um, yeah, it's just a huge waste of everybody's time. Um, but it is, hopefully it will be a bit of a relief to some of the people who are trying to, to flee um, with that for our humanitarian pause. Um, we are going to go into a go to a song. Um, it is called Min Irhabi, and that means Who is the Terrorist by DAM or Da Arab MCs. Um, the, uh, the, the artist is a Palestinian um, hip-hop artist, and DAM reputedly is... Palestine's first rap group. It was formed in 1998 and the trio is based in Lod, 
approximately 20 kilometers from Jerusalem, and they know firsthand what is, it is like to live as Palestinians in present-day Israel. And they rap mostly in Arabic, but sometimes in English and occasionally, occasionally in Hebrew. Uh, and the name DAM is an acronym for Da Arab MCs in English. So I hope you enjoy. This is Min Arabi here on 3CR Green Left Radio. We've had 50 years of assault on Palestinian rights. I think they're the most terrorized, or at least with the Iraqi people, they're the most terrorized people on earth and have been for so many years. Practically every Palestinian lives in constant harassment, threat of violence, humiliation. Been that way for a long, long time. مين الهابي انا رهابي كيف رهابي وانا عايش ببلادي مين الهابي انت رهابي ماكلني وانا عايش ببلادي قاتلني زي ما تلت اجدادي اجل الخنون عن فاضي ما انت يا عدو بتلعب دور الشاهد المحامي والقاضي علي قاضي نهايتي بادي حلمك انقل فوق معنى علي حلمك لعلي تصير بالمقابر اكتريه ديمقراطيه والله الكمناسيه من كثر ما اغتصبتوا النفس العربيه هبلت ولدت ولا تسمع عمليا انفجاريه وهنا ديتنا رهابيه يعني ضربتني وبكيت سبعتني واشتكيت لما ذكرتك انك بدين نطيت وحكيت ما انتوا بتخلوا ولاد صغار يلمحوا شعر مالهم مش اهل هيدبوهم بالدار ايش كنو نسيت انو سلاحك ضب الاهل تحت الحجار وعلق لما وجع الفار بتناديني ارهابي مين ارهابي انا ارهابي كيف ارهابي وانا عايش في بلادي مين ارهابي وانا عايش في بلادي ليش ارهابي عشان دمي مش هادي حامي عشان رافع راسه وارض بلادي قتلوا حبايبي انا لحالي اهلي تشردوا راح اضلي انادي انا مش ضد السلام السلام ضدي علي بده يهدي تراثي بده يمحي واللي بيحكي كلمه بشد وراه همه بيكون زلمه تعملوا منه رمه ومين انتوا لسه امتى خبرتوا انصلوا قد ايش شتلتوا قد ايش شتمتوا اماياتنا بيبكوا ابياتنا بيشكوا اراضينا بيخطفوا انا بقولكم مين you're back listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR and you just heard Min Irhabi, which means who is the terrorist by, uh, by DAM or Da Arab Mics. I hope you enjoyed that. And now we are happy to be joined by Tazneem Rock, who is a pro-democracy and campaign manager for the Myanmar Campaign Network from Gadiland in Sydney. Good morning, Tazmin. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And I just realised that you're also uh, an actress, an Australian, t- <laughs> and you used to act in one of my favourite shows when I was growing up, Heartbreak High. Is that right? Oh, goodness. That is, that's very true. I, I didn't put it on my bio. I was like, potentially I should probably just talk about the, you know, pro-democracy and, and um, our campaign. But yeah, I, um, I've been working as an actor for the past 20-something years as well. So very, wow. very, two very different, two very different hats to wear. Yeah, of course. I mean, hopefully that, you know, that kind of um, your work may in some, like, some way uh, highlight some of the issues that are happening in Myanmar. And, I hope so. Yeah. And in saying that, it has been over two years now, well, more, way more than two years, I think, um, since the military coup in Myanmar. And we have been covering it 
here on Green Left and uh, 3CR, and the community here have organised rallies in solidarity with the pro-democracy movement against the military coup, which did plunge the country into a deep political, economic and humanitarian crisis. Uh, Taz, Neem, would you be able to give us an update on the current political situation in Myanmar and you know, what, what is life like for the people living under military, military rule? Mm, yeah, of course. So, yes, obviously very different now, nearly three years into the coup, than what we saw at the very beginning. Um, one thing that we do know, so the Special Advisory Council uh, for Myanmar uh, did some really interesting research. So they've revealed that the military only control 15 to 20% of the country, so not very much. So obviously they control the organs of power. Um, they you know, took control of the capital and the government buildings. They have control of, you know, the bank accounts the, uh, and that kind of thing. But the majority of the country is actually either under ethnic control or control of the legitimate government, the National Unity Government. Uh, and because the military can't win on the ground, they're increasingly relying on airstrikes and heavy artillery to attack civilians. So this year we've seen an, a 300% increase in airstrikes compared to 2021. Um, and the military are using the same strategy that they've been using for decades, which is the four-cut strategy, um, and that's to cut off food, funds, information and recruit to the pro-democracy movement, and it's a strategy that deliberately targets civilians. But what is actually happening is uh, rather than, um, rather than uh, you know, uh, oppressing them or, um, ca- you know, cowering them into submission, it's actually galvanising people. Um, you know, people really dislike the military for all of the abuses and the human rights abuses that they've been doing. Um, but because of all of that violence and because of the airstrikes, now there's over 1.9 million people internally displaced, and that includes people who were displaced prior to the coup as well. And the military um, are still arbitrarily arresting people. They've arrested over 25,000 people and over 19,000 of them are still detained, including children. There's widespread verified reports of, uh, unfortunately, torture and um, sexual abuse and rape uh, in detainment as well. And uh, the life of political prisoners is, is pretty dire, very poor conditions without access to proper medical care and and food. Um, And that sounds all very dire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But but one thing I will say is, like, it's actually really exciting. We're nearly three years into the coup and... The, the people are still strong. The pro-democracy um, movement is still really strong. And, um, yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing some interesting uh, changes just recently as well in terms of uh, some of the ethnic armed groups joining in the fight against the military. Yeah, thanks, Antasnim. Um, I'd like to ask, yes, um, since the... 2021 Myanmar group. Um, have uh, have you kind of been active in the number of groups that support the pro-democracy movement in Myanmar? And can you tell us about the ongoing re- people's resistance to the military? You know, how the people from the different minority groups um, been involved, unifying against the military rule? And of course, do the resistance fighters have widespread support throughout the country? And can you tell us about, you know, what's happening to the Rohingya and their genocide? Yeah, for sure. 
Um, yeah, well, since the coup, I think myself and, and many other people, we were we were drawn to take, to take action. So, as you know, my my other life, you know, I'm an I'm an actress. It's very very different to what um, I'm doing now. So, mm. I in the first year, I was uh, volunteering um, with. Uh, a, a group in Australia, so it's called the CRPH NUG Support Group, and this is um, a big group, a national coalition of 73 organisations that are supporting the legitimate government, and there's lots of different uh, support groups in many different countries all over the world. Uh, and I also participated in some campaigns by uh, global groups, such as the Blood Money Campaign, and that was specifically calling for... Uh, sanctions on uh, state-owned enterprises, so the big lucrative natural resource um, state and state-owned enterprises. Um, so, in regards to your question about um, what the you know how are people resisting? People are still resisting in lots of different ways. So, as you saw in the very beginning of the coup, um, it started with millions of people in the streets. That was the civil disobedience movement. Um, and that is still continuing. So these are hundreds of thousands of workers who have been striking for um, nearly three years. Uh, and they actually played a really vital role in preventing the military from consolidating power. So by refusing to work, they shut down infrastructure like the banking, transport and health. And many of them have now fled to ethnic-controlled areas. And they're now contributing to the revolution by lending their skills, particularly in health and education. And people are still protesting every day um, in ethnic-controlled areas. These are very public rallies and marches. But in urban areas, they have to do things like uh, flash mobs and quickly disperse. And people are uh, being more, I think, covert and creative um, in, in ways of protesting. So, for example, like hiding pro-democracy symbols on their... Uh, clothes um, or objects that they reveal in photos that they share online. Um, and uh, the pro-democracy uh, movement is also very highly engaged on social media and messaging apps. And like I said, um, they have these vast global networks. So uh, Blood Money Campaign and Global Myanmar Spring Revolution, um, they're able to coordinate simultaneous campaigns within Myanmar and all around the world as well. Um, another way people are resisting is by boycotting goods and services connected to the military um, because, as you know, the military and their cronies, they have vast business networks um, from anything from, like, communication uh, to hospitality and food and beverages. So people are refusing to buy things like particular beer and rum and cigarettes or uh, refusing to shop at certain stores as well. Um and so in regards to the resistance uh, and resistant fighters, yes, definitely they do have widespread support throughout the country. So even before the People's Defence Force was formed, so that's the National Unity Government uh, Army, um, people were forming uh, groups to protect their villages and townships and then many protesters travelled to the ethnic-controlled areas and then they've been trained by resistance groups and they have been participating in military operations. So I would say, yes, definitely, um, there is widespread support um, of uh, the resistance fighters. And I mentioned before um, the coordination between um, some of the some very powerful ethnic arm organisations. So mm -hmm. just recently, on the 27th of October, um, three really big and very well-armed um, ethnic armed organisations um, came together. Uh, they call themselves the Brotherhood Alliance and they've uh, 
been really, really successful in uh, their campaign. So the Myanmar military has suffered heavy losses. Uh, yeah, they've taken over like 100 military outposts and blown up bridges to p- prevent military reinforcement. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it actually feels like, um, you know, you don't want to say things, you know, mm. hastily, but it really does feel like there is a tide turning um, in terms of the, yeah, the, the fight against the military. Uh, you did ask about the Rohingya as well. Mm-hmm. Should we talk about that as well? Yeah, if you could just mention in, in all of this what is actually happening to the Rohingya because they are also experiencing a genocide. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there are there are over a million uh, Rohingya genocide survivors in Bangladesh and there are also um, survivors in India, Nepal, Indonesia, Malaysia. Um, there was recently, actually, I think just in the last couple of days, uh, a report has come out by Fortify Rights, and they've examined the conditions in the camps, um, and they have found that they they are run by armed gangs who have killed and abducted refugees. There's a massive issue of human trafficking and extortion, not just by the gangs, but um, Bangladesh authorities also um, have detained and tortured and extorted Rohingya genocide survivors. Um, there is still, uh, I think, over 300,000 Rohingya still internally displaced in Rakhine State. And it's been referred to as genocide by attrition. So the junta is still blocking aid to uh, to, to Rakhine State. Um, and, of course, the people living there are living under apartheid. They have no citizenship rights. They have restrictions on their movement, um, very limited education and work opportunities as well. Um, and just recently, like in in May, um, Cyclone Mocha um, came through and oh, uh, it, the internally displaced persons camps and sites were very severely affected and I think about 85% of the shelters were destroyed. So, yeah, that is a, it's a really dire situation. They're a particularly vulnerable population. Yeah, thanks, thanks for talking about the Rohingyas. I mean, they are most of them are stateless and um, from my understanding most have now actually are living outside of their homeland than in. Mm, yep, yeah, 100%. And I can't imagine a three-year strike of the people. Isn't it crazy? Yeah, I mean, and protesting for so long, um, but they are fighting for their lives and, and there is still global solidarity too. We've heard about protests in Thailand and, and Philippines, is that right? Yeah, all, yeah. Over, the, all over the world, yeah, yeah, all over the world. Um, and one thing about the, the civil disobedience movement, um, they, they, because the Myanmar diaspora is also really strong, they've also been assisting by uh, raising money to give them stipends while they're striking and also helping them retrain and start businesses so they can have alternative forms of work rather than uh, going back to work under the regime. Yeah. Well, we we are um, heading to the end of the interview, but we do want to quickly touch on the fact that Australia has increased some of its imports from the coup regime in Myanmar. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, would you be able to just, you know, talk about what the Australian government's response has been? Uh, You you yourself have spoken about Australia's response to the coup at a recent Green Left public meeting. Um, Yeah, so would you be able to just, uh, yeah, tell us about that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Australia sanctioned five military individuals in 2018 in relation to the Rohingya genocide. And um, when the coup uh, when the coup happened, um, obviously there was heavy lobbying. Um, we were advocating for sanctions since the beginning. 
at that time, um, Australia economic advisor to the National Union, uh, sorry, the National League for Democracy, Professor Sean Chanel was still incarcerated. So we were told that potentially his safety was a concern and that's why sanctions weren't issued. Finally, this year, um, the Australian government issued sanctions on the 1st of February. Um, and they were significant, like they sanctioned the commander-in-chief and the instigator of the coup in online and two really big military conglomerates. Um, and we were hoping that this was the beginning of a series of um, sanctions announcements. Um, but we haven't issued any more sanctions since February this year. And as you know, we're coming into three years of the coup. Um, so that's uh, a big thing that we're calling for. And we also recently discovered, yeah, this year that Australia has increased its imports of timber and wood products from Myanmar. And uh, timber and wood products, uh, we've also been importing pearls and gems and arms and ammunition. And all three of those are linked to state-owned enterprises. And, of course, those bank accounts are under control of the military mm. and they're relying on those um, state-owned enterprises to give them foreign uh, revenue so that they can buy uh, helicopter gunships and guns and aviation fuel. Um, so that's uh, a big concern. We have raised it um, uh, with, with DFAT. So we're hoping that, obviously, the main call is going to be for sanctions, but we're hoping that there will be better guidance to Australian businesses about doing due diligence. You know, importing these goods is directly funding the military. Well, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much, Tasnim, for joining us on the show this morning. It's been really interesting having you on. But before we let you go, would you be able, you know, is there anything else you'd like to let listeners know? Maybe you can even tell us a bit about the Myanmar campaign network that you're involved in, how this can get involved, or, or just anything you'd like to, to say. Yeah, of course. Um We'd love to stay connected with your listeners. Um, so uh, we are uh, a coalition uh, that started just just after the coup. So it involves uh, Australian trade unions and NGOs, human rights organisations, Myanmar diaspora organisations and faith-based organisations. Um, we uh, look. I'd like to thank your listeners um, and Green Left as well for standing in solidarity with the people of Myanmar. Um, and it's really important that we use our freedom and our voices to stand up for our people who are suffering injustice, not just in Myanmar, but all over the world. Um, so I would love to ask you to follow um, Myanmar Campaign Network on Facebook and Twitter so that we can stay in touch and let you know about any upcoming actions and also to subscribe to the newsletter. Um, and you can find us at myanmarcampaignnetwork.org. Oh, great. So we'll, we'll put those links um, in, in our, when we upload the podcast to the 3CR website. But thank you once again for joining us. And to um, a, a, listeners who have just tuned in, you were just listening to Tazanim Rock, who is a pro-democracy and campaign manager for the Myanmar Campaign Network from Gadiland. Um, thank you so much, Tazanim. Thanks so much for having me. We're just going to go to a quick break, um, and you'll be and and yep, join us later for. Are we going to do the activist calendar? Yeah, we'll do yep. the activist calendar. Yeah, so we're going to come back with the activist calendar. You're listening to Green Left Radio on Three CR. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. 
Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR 855 AM. And it is now time for the Green Left Actress Calendar to you know tell um, to give you the updates on the latest progressive and left wing events that are happening in Melbourne. <laughs> so the first event I want to highlight is um, Green Left is actually going to be having uh, a, a big uh, a comedy debate, um, a big fundraiser tonight, our annual Green Left comedy debate with the theme "We Should Welcome Our New AI Overlords." Um, so it's going to be emceed by Tom Ballard with a whole range of progressive kind of comedians. Um, it's going to be starting at. At 6.30 tonight for an 8pm start at, with dinner bar at the Fitzroy Town Hall, 201 Naper Street in Fitzroy. So just around the corner from Free CR. Then on, then on Saturday, there's going to be, uh, there's going to be, a, um, there's going to be a rally for renters um, um, all, all on the corner of Smith Street and Guttrell Street in Fitzroy. And that's going to be happening at 11am and yet, yeah, um, not 11am, 1pm on Saturday. Then there's going to be um, a, 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 mu- a, um, a music, uh, a night of anti-fascist oi at um, 8pm at the Cafe um, Gummo, um, 711 High Street in Formbury. And then on Thursday, um, November, um, November the 16th, there will be a public forum, Occupation, Accountability and Palestinian Self-Determination at 6pm at 26 Ferry Street in the city. Um, and then at on Saturday, November the eighteenth, uh, there'll be uh, there'll be a, a, pal- a local Palestine protest called in the Marybeck area, area at the corner of Bell Street and um, and Sydney Road at Bell um, Bell Reserve at eleven a.m. Then there'll be a protest, bring them here, and the ban on refugees on. Um, re- um, stuck in det- Indonesia. They'll be happening at 2 p.m. at the State Library on Saturday, November the 18th. And then there'll be the Little um, Red Book Fair from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the New International Bookshop at Strades Hall, 54 Victoria Street, Carlton. Then on Wednesday, November the 22nd, there'll be a protest, defend the right to protest, free the refugees at 8.30 p.m. at the Heidelberg Magistrates Court, Jika Street in Heidelberg. Um, and then on on, there will also be a film screening concerning violence at 6 p.m. at the New International Bookshop, um, and then of course there'll be the there'll be the Rising Tide blockade from um, from I think from from Sat- from November 24th to November 27th, and yeah there'll be there's actually a um, Nam slash Melbourne con- Victorian contingent for the People's Blockade in Newcastle Port, and you can kind of find out details. Um, just a bit of an update. I mean, a lot of people are going to be leaving on the Thursday night. Um, you um for, by booking a coach. Um, which you can um if you get there's a coach from Melbourne to Sydney that you can get from Firefly Express. So yeah, just 
on work note. And then on Saturday, November the 25th, there'll be a rally, Trans um, Day of Resistance at 1.30pm at the State Library in Swanson Street. Um, so, yeah, those are sort of all the kind of events that are sort of happening. Now, I know that um, Chloe wanted me to sort of play a song before the um, for the next interview, so maybe I'll give, um, give her introduction a uh, chance to introduce it, and then, yeah. Yes, please. Thank you. Just because we did just interview Tasmin Rock, who's a pro-democracy um, activist for um, Myanmar Campaign Network. So this song is called One Day, and it's by Rebel Riot. And Rebel Riot is a... They wrote one day to inspire the pro- the protesters who have taken to the streets since the military seized power on February 1st in 2021. So I hope listeners enjoy. You're back listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and I hope you enjoyed listening to One Day by Rebel Riot. It's basically, they've got this, they're, they're, um, the, it's the punk soundtrack to Myanmar's anti-coup protests. And I recently saw them actually perform, um, a while, like just recently, they performed as part of a, a rally, it was called A Warning to Humanity, where 20 nations um, stood in solidarity against Israel's genocide in Gaza and with the Palestinians. You can check that out at uh, 4C, F-O-R-S-E-A. And you are, um, we are now joined by Dave Ball for our third interview. Uh, Dave Ball is the Deputy Branch Secretary of the MUA in Victoria. Uh, good morning, Dave. Good morning, Chloe and Jacob. How are you guys? Yeah, we're we're having a good morning. Thank you. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, so um, I guess I want to kind of start. Um, quite, um, we want to sort of talk to you about some of the disputes that are happening. Can you tell us a bit about what's happening with the DP, um, DP world dispute that's kind of happening, giving a bit of our listeners uh, an outline, and there has been a bit of an ongoing history of industrial action against this company. Yeah, sure. DP World is probably the biggest terminal operator in Australia, having um, operations in four terminals around Australia. We have around 400 MUA members that work down at DP World, and their EA uh, expired in September this year, and we've been trying to negotiate a new agreement with them um, and not having any luck at all, um, despite DP World uh, recording record profits of over $4.5 last year, and Actually, uh, they're not much of a corporate citizen either. They haven't paid a single cent in tax in Australia over the last eight years, despite record profits. 
So we're not really asking for a great deal. We just want to stay competitive with their competitors, Patrick's, um, on East Swanson Dock. And Patrick's, this January, their salaries will go over 17% higher than um, our members at DP World. And we can't have, you know, members doing the same work, the same job, and receiving um, such a, a lower pay. So that fight goes on. And um, due to... Uh, you know, the intractable bargaining laws that the Labor government, in their wisdom, introduced uh, recently were under pressure to negotiate an agreement within nine months of it expiring because at the end of that nine-month period, Dubai Ports can apply to the Fair Work Commission to have the agreement um, handed down to them by a Fair Work Commissioner, which is obviously not uh, somewhere we really want to go, although... I guess that could go either way. And you know, Dubai Ports have engaged Nik- Nikolai Nose, who um, some listeners may remember was the CEO of Switzer, who applied similar tactics last year. So they made it pretty clear at the start of the negotiations how they were going to handle the negotiations in an, in an aggressive and uncooperative manner by employing Nikolai Nose. So we knew we were in for a, a bit of a war with them and We've been taking protected action for the last uh, four weeks. We're heading into week five now. Some of that action includes two-hour stoppages on every shift. So the 24-hour period is broken up into day shift, twilight shift and night shift. They normally go for eight hours each at the moment. They're only going for six hours each, and our members are walking off the job after six hours. There's also a series of other bands around overtime, call-ins, upgrades that we've got in place. So uh, we're certainly in for the long haul. We do want an agreement. We just want a fair a fair agreement that, uh, as I said, um, brings, brings these guys closer to industry standards, provides them with a bit of job security and dignity in their workplace, and uh, try to stop the attack on the rosters that DP World are doing. They're trying to... Uh, make the rosters a lot more flexible from their perspective and therefore um, having a big impact on people's life, work, um, balances. And, uh, you know, we, we can't have that. These guys are already basically totally regular shift workers. They're away from their families uh, a, a lot of the time and uh, to make it even more flexible is just it's just not fair and we're not going to put up with it. So... Bit of a battle there, but uh, we're looking forward to uh, winning and uh, Dubai Port should know that we always win, so they should just uh, <laughs> come to the party. Yeah, thanks, Dave. That, that is pretty significant, the, the workers across the river. Um, the members at Patrick's are now receiving 17.7% higher wage than the DP World members. That, that's, a, that's a lot. Um, it, it is, and, and that's a, a direct... Um, response to the cost of living. We managed to negotiate into the Patrick's agreement that they would receive CPI mm. pay increases, and that's why that 17% is there. So it's it's really, you know, it, it's not a pay rise. It's just keeping up with the cost of living. Yeah, I mean it's good, but it's I'm, I'm I was just trying to point out it's pretty bad for the DP world members to, um, yeah. yeah. Hopefully they they can um, get get those fair pay rises soon. And after p- the company paying zero tax, that's just I mean it's incredible that they've um, increased their terminal fees of up to fifty two point five percent in some some areas. It's outrageous. 
That's right. Holding, holding, holding the businesses in Victoria to ransom with that increase of over fifty percent on their land side operations, and I know the uh, Victorian state government are not happy about it, and certainly we aren't either. Well, solidarity to those workers that are taking action. Um, we hope that the action is, or well, it, it will be disruptive for the company. Um, I was reading that it's something like 25% drop in productivity every day. So hopefully, um, you know, uh, DP Well, um, you know, does come to the table and, and meet the demands of, of the workers, which are really fair demands. Mm, for sure. Um, we wanted to also ask you about... The fact that there were, there were more than 2,000 unionists that have now signed on to a call to end Israel's brutal war, um, its occupation and practices of apartheid and ethnic cleansing. And it, it is also in support of the Palestinian people while seeking to build a militant anti-war movement. I think that's important for people to know as well. The MUA Sydney branch and the CFMEU construction division have also signed on um, I, I know that you're in the Victoria branch. Um, uh, sorry, Victoria, the Geelong. Um, no, sorry, you're you're sorry, you're over here. You're not in Sydney. But would you be able yeah. to tell us more about this? What, were you part like Were you part of blockading the Israeli ship at the port of Melbourne a, a couple of yesterday? Uh, so no, the MUA were not part of blocking that vessel. Uh, right. That's a, an Israeli company called Zim mm-hmm. Zim Industries or Zim Shipping, and that is owned by. Um, well, it's a bit difficult to get to the bottom of who actually owns it, but it was it was definitely an Israeli government shipping company, and they have their claws into uh, lots of relationships in shipping. So uh, just because a ship doesn't say Zim on it, it doesn't necessarily it's not part of that uh, conglomerate. But um, you know, the, the, the Palestinian community that blocked those uh, Zim vest or oh, Zim trucks down at Web Dock the other day were obviously. Um, extremely passionate and massively affected by the the horror and the terror that's taking place in their homeland and you know, our hearts go out to all those people that are being affected and uh, we'll be supporting the Palestinian community whenever we can um, unfortunately you know due to the outrageous industrial relations laws in Australia that we can we constantly lobby against and we want changed it's it's really difficult for the MUA to take direct action and you know we're facing some significant fines at the moment for some uh, action in other parts of the country and your listeners might not be aware that um, the ILWU who's the International Longshoremen's Association who uh, have supported the MUA through some uh, massive conflict in particular the 1998 Patrick's dispute are currently uh, lodged for bankruptcy due to being fined over $100 million by one of these large corporate uh, mongrels. So, you know, the laws in the land are uh, working against us, but um, we fully support the Palestinian community and we'll be doing whatever we can to help them through this horrific time. All right. And um, any other kind of warfare kind of disputes or other industrial campaigns that you'd like to kind of highlight and support? Um, but I also want to kind of thank you for coming on our show mm-hmm. and, I guess, anything kind of else you'd like to list, uh, listeners know. <laughs> just just quickly, I would like to mention uh, Geelong Port, which unfortunately is another private industry. I mean, I don't know why you would sell your ports to private industry, but that's what the Victorian government have done many years ago with the Port of Geelong. And 
We're currently negotiating an EA with them. Those negotiations have broken down, so we'll be taking protected action down in the port of Geelong in support of those workers who I would like to add are very loyal to the... Uh, to the job and dedicated to the job, and it would be just nice to see the port show them a bit of respect by giving them a decent uh, cost-of-living pay rise. Spits are playing up again uh, here in the port of Melbourne with a uh, massive increase in shipping movements and tug movements and uh, failing to meet those movements by putting on um, you know, permanent, permanent employees to help uh, with that workload. So there's some fatigue issues down in the river. Finally, I'd just like to finish up with saying on the 16th of November at 12 o'clock out the front of Dubai Ports or DP World, we're going to have a rally in support of our members down there and we'd uh, more than welcome any members of the public who'd like to come down and support us. Thank, thank you for coming on the, on the show, Dave. Um, I was listening to the MUA Fire Up show, another great show here on, on 3CR, and... Um, yeah, there was something, I think one of the presenters was talking about something that's going to happen on the 16th of November. Um, yeah, so if you like to let, I, I don't know if I heard right, but yeah, if there's something happening, some kind of action that we can support, please let let us know or anything else you'd like to let us know before we, we wrap up the interview. Yeah, so that is uh, on the 16th, Thursday, the 16th of November at 12 o'clock at the front of DP World. We're going to have a bit of a rally and... Uh, let DP and the world know that we're here to stay and uh, one day longer we'll be fighting. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning, Dave Ball, and for listeners tuning in. You are listening to Dave Ball, the Deputy Branch Secretary of the MUA Branch, uh, Victoria Branch. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Um, we're just speaking to Dave Ball, Assistant Secretary of the MUA, and just want to kind of um, make a bit of a kind of plug um, for, for that action that happened on Wednesday. I think it was very incredible that mm. they um, had um, blockaded um, um, the truck, that activists and Palestinian activists had blocked that truck. And I think we're going to hopefully kind of see more kind of direct action. And I guess one of the things is, yeah, I think Dave Ball is also right about these kind of very restrictive anti-union laws that actually prevent actively prevent um, unions from taking these kind of solidarity actions more directly. And But I guess, I mean, the other thing as well is we are seeing more examples of, um, you know, dock workers refusing to load shipments into mm. um, into Israeli ships, etc. So I think workers' power and action is going to be very important in terms of building the, um, the Free Palestine movement. Anyway, I'm just going to go play a quick announcement. You are listening to Green Left Radio. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter.
You're back listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. And we hope that listeners have enjoyed our show today. We want to thank you for tuning in. And uh, thank you to our guests, Peter Boyle um, from Socialist Alliance. Um, thank you to Tasmin Rock, the pro-democracy and campaign manager for Myanmar Campaign Network, and Dave Ball, the Deputy Branch Secretary of MUA, to talk about all the industrial strikes that are happening. Um, and also, you know, if you do want to, if you do like the work that Green Left does, um, please think about becoming a subscriber. It is a social, vital social change project, and you know, we make all content um, available online for free without paywalls with no corporate sponsors or advertising so we do rely on support and donations from from listeners and readers like you so if you like if you like us to keep going you can support us for just uh, for as little as five dollars a month although five dollars can be a lot for some people um, you can get with that five dollars you can get the green left digital edition in your inbox each week and for ten dollars uh, you can get the um, you can get the digital edition plus the hard copy delivered to your door. Um, also, 3CR has always been a supporter of Palestine and has always stood with Palestine, so please support 3CR, become a subscriber. Um, and lastly, um, we are having, I'm sure Jacob mentioned it as part of the the calendar, but we are having the 20th annual Green Left Comedy Debate tonight, and that's with um, it's with Tom Ballard, who's going to be the MC. If uh, listeners don't know about Tom Ballard, he's a very funny comedian. He's pro-refugee. He makes a lot of really great um, political uh, jokes. Um, and, um, yeah, and there's also going to be really great progressive comedians. Um, the lineup includes Fiona Scott, Norman, Hellchild, Jack Brady, Nikki Barry, Sean Bedlam, and Shirley Hood. So please look look that up. Book your tickets, or you can um, book them at the door. Um, buy them at the door tonight. We provide dinner, and yeah, it's gonna it's just gonna be a really fun night, isn't it, Jacob? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's actually gave it the first comedy kind of debate that we've actually had uh, since actually 2019, um, since the kind of COVID era. So, yeah, I think it'll be very kind of exciting. Yeah, Fitzroy Town Hall. Um, and um, you can still book your tickets online, but mm. even if you don't, uh, even when bookings closes, you can just still buy your tickets at the door. There'll be plenty of tickets available. And, um, yeah, it's going to be a very fun event. And I guess we should say the debate topic. The debate topic is... We should welcome our new AI overlords. Um, it's a very funny topic and because it is a real issue that actually does affect a lot of um, artists, a lot of um, writers. So, um, yeah, we look, to, we look forward to hearing the comedians debate either side of that, of that topic. Um, and, yeah, we look forward to seeing any of you listeners come along. We'll be there. Um, and um, I wanted to say something else about this. Um, well, yeah, it's this is a this is a big fundraiser for Green Left. So, um, this is another way you can support Green Left, um, which is people powered. It's grassroots media. It's activist media. We're not just journalists. We're actually on the ground talking to all the victims of the campaigns that we are helping to build. 
Um, and yeah, it's a it's a, a a paper like there's not not many papers out there like Green Left, so we do want it to keep going. So this is one fun way you can help support. And there's also going to be a few campaign groups that will be attending, like the Refugee Action Collective. Um, there'll be a climate, hopefully, a climate group there. Three CR will be there as well. So yeah, look forward to seeing you. All right, well, we're just going to finish up the program. Thank all our listeners um, and stay tuned for Left After Breakfast. See ya. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call one 634 206 Arise, you workers from their slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that crap. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.